The Man War Podcast is sponsored by Alt Playground. APG is more than just a place to find couples to swap with. Alt Playground is a lifestyle community for all non-monogamous and sexually adventurous people to connect and share. And you know I started a profile. Join me over at altplayground.net. That's A-L-T playground.net. Hotmovies.com has long been an ethical and affordable place to hashtag pay for some of your porn. Now with Hot Movies Select, customers gain access to unlimited viewings of tens of thousands of additional films from all their favorite studios for the low, low price of $24.95. Visit HotMovies.com, click Select Unlimited, and use promo code MANHOR at checkout so they know who sent you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Now let's get to the show. Welcome to the Man Whore Podcast. Shout out to all the rabbit bangers obsessed with Lola Bunny's tits. Dude, you're looking real weird on the internet right now. You may want to back down. <laughs> this is Billy Presida, and you are listening to the Man Whore Podcast. Doing take number three, because my roommate keeps fucking with me, but I'm almost out of here. Yeah! You know, I might surprise some of you with where I fall uh, on this whole cancel culture discourse that seems to be sw- just sweeping the nation. I'm sure many of you could guess that, like, I find I think that jokes done by comedians in comedy contexts are sacred. I do. I, I don't think they're just sacred. I think they're important to society. But there is an absurd amount of outrage going on about some sort of alleged cancel culture going on. Uh, you know, so I ran a little experiment. I posted on my own Facebook page and I was like, hey, comics, give me one example of a comedian canceled for a joke who wasn't also sexually assaulting people. Name one. I can't think of one. I tried. And by the way, I take canceled means you don't work. Like you're in time fucking out. You're you're not still touring while people are yelling at you. You don't lose a book deal, but then you self-publish and you're still making mad money. Like you are away. You know who was actually canceled? Michael Richards. Michael Richards was canceled. That was like, what, 10 years ago? And it wasn't over a joke. He just like got into a fight on stage with some hecklers and then started calling the hecklers the N-word. That's not a joke. And he's actually canceled. He didn't keep touring. He hasn't like been on TV. You haven't seen Michael Richards in a while. Michael Richards is so gone, Gen Z doesn't even know who he is. Everyone else is still working, everybody. They're working. The closest you can get to is, is Kevin Hart. And Kevin Hart wasn't canceled. Kevin Hart just lost arguably one of the biggest gigs that a stand-up comic can get. But he was still touring even during all of that. He hasn't lost any of his Netflix deals. Kevin's good. So I'm not sure what we're talking about when we're saying like, oh, everyone's getting canceled. 
I think you're confusing criticism with cancellation. And even when we're talking about some private companies rebranding some of their properties, a la the Dr. Seuss or the Mr. Potato Head debacle, that wasn't like liberals coming for your childhood toys and cartoons. I haven't seen, I didn't see Dr. Seuss trend until Fox News made a trend and said, look, they canceled Dr. Seuss. Did they? Or did a private company decide that they didn't want to publish a, cu- a few of his titles anymore? Because that's what actually happened. I, and then here I thought that the free speech of a private corporation was something that made conservatives rock hard, but maybe I'm wrong. No one's being canceled. Everything's fine. Some people are being criticized. But the folks who are like worried about cancel culture are now starting to sound just as ridiculous as the social justice warriors who want to cancel comedians over jokes. You're all starting to sound really fucking silly. This week on the podcast, I have got on author Hugh Ryan. Uh, He is the author of the book, When Brooklyn Was Queer. It's a fantastic book. I fucking loved it. And I can't wait to share him uh, with y'all in a little bit. But first, got some messages I want to read your way. I got some words from the listeners I want to add to the conversation. This first one is actually a comment. And it's a comment about my episode two weeks ago with Marcella Alonzo, episode 373. Uh, Some of y'all might remember that Marcella made a comment about Kobe Bryant. She she says that she thinks the Kobe Bryant rape was set up and believes that he he was faithful to his wife, Vanessa. And her reasoning was that she didn't hear any other sex workers (laughs) um, ever talk about having Kobe as a client. Therefore, he was clearly faithful. Longtime fan of the show, Josh, uh, he, he wrote in a comment. And I wanted to read it to y'all just to refresh people's minds. The Kobe Bryant stuff was like early aughts, mid aughts, if I remember correctly. Uh, Josh writes, during the time of the incident, I was good friends with a deputy sheriff with Eagle County in Colorado. I lived down the road in Glenwood Springs, but knew him through mutual friends and we hung out quite a lot. He said that everybody in the sheriff's department believed she was raped, but they could not do much legally. And neither could the county prosecutors. From what he said, it appeared that she was starstruck, went back to his room, and things were consensual for a while. Then, apparently, Kobe took things further than she wanted and in an unwanted direction. But because she had clearly consented earlier, he said that the sheriff's department really had their hands tied. And remember, this is, what, 15, 20 years ago? The concept of uh, giving consent and then withdrawing consent Alien concept. I don't, it was barely even talked about. It's barely understood today. Josh goes on, usually the sheriff's department or police don't side with the victims of rape. But when they all agree that rape happened, it should really raise some eyebrows. He said that only two cases at the time really made his stomach turn. One of them was Kobe Bryant. And the other one was a murder that happened earlier that year, which was the first time in the area for many, many decades. Holy shit. Either way, I believe the victim, and in this case, also the Eagle County Sheriff's Department. Uh, Thank you, Josh, for adding that to the conversation. I know I didn't really push back on Marcella when she made that comment. I I didn't really feel like going off on that side tangent down that rabbit hole. So I appreciate, uh, you know, Josh adding that. Uh, This next message comes uh, through my OnlyFans from a a user I'll call EE. He writes, hey, Billy, sorry for the abrupt message, but really would love some help and input. I'm really new to OnlyFans. Like, really new. Like, no content new. Curly have no followers new. 
and I'm currently trying to make some extra money to help fund my family and kids. I came across an article online and I was like, man, this dude is class. He's just like a normal guy. Could I possibly ask for any advice or tips on how to get going? Sorry if it seems forward. I'm at a loss and can't see why anyone would pay or want to subscribe to my page. But your article on BuzzFeed has got me inspired, dude. Hope to hear back. Oi. Um, one thing, everyone, I'm a terrible case study for starting an OnlyFans. I'm monetizing a fan base that has been listening to me talk about my dick for years. And I have the shamelessness enough and the blue eyes to, you know, at least take a stab at slinging my dick online for money. Now, if you want to do the same, I mean, go for it. Go with God. Do all that jazz. Hit me up and please use my referral link. But dude, like, I don't have to feed kids. I don't need to provide for a significant other. I don't have potentially other family members in my house that I got to take care of. And if that's your case, which it sounds like it is, I mean, that's high stakes. And I think your time and energy can be more efficiently placed in um, more profitable endeavors. I don't think the guy listens to my show much, uh, but, you know, I have had various types of sex workers on here all the time, and they are always explaining and sharing what kind of fucking hustle it is, how much time it saps out of your day, how much attention and focus it takes. And that's just to maybe make good money to give you all a frame of reference, like the top, what, eight to 10 percent of accounts on OnlyFans, I think, something like that, make about $1,000 in a month. So if you want to be making thousands of dollars a month to like support a family, you got to you got to be up in that probably top 1, 2, 3%, maybe. Maybe even maybe even higher. I felt bad uh for the guy cuz I was kind of telling him like you this is a bad idea. Please don't do this. Please do something else that like is a more assured way of being able to feed children. You know, I'm not trying to dissuade people from going into sex work to try to support a family. I'm just saying, starting from scratch on OnlyFans, especially as a, as a dude with a dick, really as a dude, period, not the wisest decision. But if you must, if you must do it, there are so many better resources than my ass. Uh, to, to give you tips on that. There are a bunch of the sex workers who've been on this podcast. Uh, there are a lot of resources that we we mention and I link to in the show notes quite often. Go follow those people. Go read their things. Go watch their YouTube videos because they're going to give you tips that actually help. I'm just a dumb comedian with a sex show and pretty eyes. I am a fluke, uh, but I'm a cute fluke. And uh, allegedly, I have a pretty dick. So, you know, it's free to follow my page, uh, OnlyFans.com slash Call me Billy. We'll end on a fun and nice note. This is a, uh, a telegram message I got from uh, from a fan. We'll just call her B. She is a new time member of the Peep Show, which if you don't know, the Peep Show is uh, it's a private group chat that has been running for years, and it's available to all of my $10 and up members on Patreon. It's just a fun little group where we, you know, we share nudes, gifts, and compliments all day. <laughs> But she wrote this really sweet thing to me. You know, she'd been in the group maybe a week and she said, you lovely fucking human. I'm so glad I found your podcast, the champagne room on discord and the peep show. If there is ever a group meetup, I hope that my anxiety would let me get up the courage to attend that as well. And if I ever get the chance to meet you, 
Dinner, drinks, a blowjob, all of the above are yours if you're up for it, because I cannot thank you enough for creating spaces like these. I'm aware this is very forward, but I am very grateful. Um, you know, you, you do not have to blow me to, to say thank you for creating these spaces. You are a $10 member on my Patreon page. You're doing great. You're doing exactly what you should be doing. <laughs> um, but I am so glad that uh, you are sharing the same sentiment that members have been sharing with me for years, that spaces like The Peep Show or even our free Discord server, The Champagne Room, have like been this really these really cool, affirmative, validating, supportive fun and sexy spaces uh, where, you know, like-minded people can connect. I, I think it's great for people who don't have a lot of openly sex positive or openly kinky or anything or openly alternative friends. It's a great place to make some new friends who think a little more like you. And the peep show itself, Jesus, I mean, that's just been a really cool, inspiring place because you're just seeing people with different types of bodies, different dick sizes, different types of labia, different levels of shyness, kind of pe peeking out of their hole and having some sexy fun. You're seeing people with different body types be called beautiful. Maybe people who aren't used to having their bodies called beautiful. I don't know. It's a really beautiful space. It's so beautiful. I feel incredibly guilty that it ends with a sales pitch. But if you want to join me, you want to join B, you want to join the rest of us in the peep show, as well as our other spaces, come on over to patreon.com slash man podcast. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash man podcast. And hey, if, if that's out of your budget, that's okay too. The Discord server is free to join. I know Discord intimidates some people, intimidated me until I got on it and I saw just how simple and easy the platform was. And there's a lot of cool, great people in it. So uh, I've, there's a link to the Discord server in the show notes as well as the Patreon. Uh, B, thank you for those kind words. I may take you up on that dinner one day because, uh, you know, a whore's got to eat. And uh, and before we get to my guest, Hugh Ryan, let's slip in a real quick fan whore appreciation moment. Okay, uh, longtime off and on member of the Peep Show, Jess Nisela. Nisela, you know, I've never known how to say your name, but I, I, I'm so glad that you were able to come on back to the fan whore community. Uh, I was so thrilled when I got that email to see that you'd returned. So I want to give you another fam just to say, hey. Okay, Hugh Ryan, everybody. He wrote this book when Brooklyn was queer. Uh, I forget how I found the book, but it was like on my radars, on my Amazon wish list. I recommended it to Megan and, and Megan got the book and she started reading it. And then there was one night I'm at her place and she asked if I want to read some of the book to her. So I'm like, yeah, yeah, I can do that. We get in bed. We, we snuggle up. I, I crack open wherever she was. And I just start reading. And the book is so good. This is such a well-written history book. It is accessible and informative. It doesn't really skimp on the facts and the factoids, but it doesn't make it so boring to read. I love that. I love a good history book with a voice, right? And I start getting so into the book that I don't notice. I, I think I read like two full chapters until uh, Megan finally said like something along the lines of like, I, well, I guess we're not having sex tonight. I'm like, were we supposed to have sex? I thought we were reading. I'm sorry. <laughs> the book was so good. I forgot to fuck my girlfriend. This is uh, I loved nerding out with him. I'm sure you'll hear my excitement. <laughs> 
So uh, I hope you will enjoy this conversation just as much as I did, uh, though that might be a little difficult because this was so much fun. A uh, little, little shout out, little poly representation for a moment. Uh, I don't, I'm not blowing up his spot. He put it out publicly, but Hugh is poly, which we don't talk about in this episode. But at the back of the book, when you're reading the thank you section, he he just he thanks his partners, and then you know he puts the the guys' names, and I'm like, does he have two boyfriends? Is he is he one of us? And he was like, yeah, you caught that. I was like, you're damn right I caught that. <laughs> All right, we're going to do a couple ad reads real quick, and then we're going to go talk with Hugh Ryan. President Joe Biden. Oh, that feels kind of nice to say, right? Is it finally? You know, okay. <laughs> uh, President Joe Biden made waves last week when he announced that every American adult will be able to get the vaccine by the end of May. You know what that means? And well, by July 4th, it should be a whole lot safer to connect with sexy people and impress your genitals together. Yeah. And altplayground.net is the lifestyle destination you want to meet other like-minded people for. Well, look, just try to keep the sex parties within CDC recommendations just for a little while. Please <laughs> keep the gangbangs under 50 people this summer. <laughs> APG has members from all over the lifestyle spectrum, whether you're polyamorous, swingers, non-monogamous, kinksters, or you and the old lady just like to have an occasional threesome every five years, you'll find that next exciting match at altplayground.net. Again, that's altplayground.net. The Man Whore Podcast is sponsored by hotmovies.com where you can watch porn from all your favorite studios, starring all your favorite performers, featuring all your favorite porn categories. And for the power porn watchers out there, yeah, the heavy users, you know who you are. Your bank accounts know who you are. <laughs> My friends over at Hot Movies have a new deal to save you money, and it's called Hot Movies Select Unlimited. Yeah, you've got your Netflix, you've got your Hulu, you've got the NFL Sunday ticket, you've got whatever Oprah's selling, and now you'll be sharing Hot Movies passwords with your friends and family too. Okay, maybe not the family, and and well, may, maybe it's only going to be the friends who you don't mind knowing that you come to stepdaughter cigarette smoking videos. G go to HotMovies.com and select Unlimited, use promo code MANHORE at checkout so they know who sent you. Hotmovies.com. Now let's get to the show. I was thinking this will be like a fun uh, pop quiz about what I actually remember from my book. So we'll see how it goes. Do you write these books and then you, it just goes out the out the brain? I mean, nothing kind of fully leaves my brain ever. Unfortunately, I will wake up in the night years <laughs> from now thinking about footnotes that I could correct in that book. But there is a certain amount of purging that I think happens afterwards, after a year. Basically, what happens is I finish the book, and then you do a reading tour, and you're performing it, and you're doing pieces from it, and you're trying to sell pieces of it, and it stays really fresh in my head for a year. And then it starts to degrade really rapidly. And because I've got a new book coming out soon, that's kind of taking up that place. Um, I do these podcasts, man, and so you know, at, after it's edited and up, like it's I I don't remember what we said. Some, so oh, yeah. I'll get like an email, be like, "Oh, I loved it when you brought this up from episode five weeks ago," and I'm thrilled to get those emails. Please keep sending them. But also, <laughs> I'm like, well, "What did I say? Did I? Are we mad? Because I don't even know the context of what I said. So am I in trouble or are we happy?" <laughs> Yeah, any kind of interview, reading, anything like that that I do, I liken it to doing karaoke. 
I have this like blackout flop sweat that starts about a minute before the camera goes on. And then I wake up an hour later and I'm like, oh, I hope I said good things. <laughs> yeah, it's like, I hope it worked out. Um, but I'm here right now with author Hugh Ryan, who is the uh, the author of the book When Brooklyn Was Queer. And you have a new book coming out uh, called The Prison on Christopher Street, A Queer History of the Women's House of Detention, which I actually knew exactly the the penitentiary you're talking about. I think I read about it in The Village. Have you read The Village? I think it's by John Straw. John Stol- yeah, 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 yeah. Very good book. That book is fantastic because not only does it mention the Women's House of Detention, but it's the rare book about Greenwich Village that actually mentions the much longer history of prisons in the village, which goes back until the late 1700s, which I yeah. think nobody ever really thinks about. Not to toot someone else's horn, my book is great too, <laughs> but that book is wonderful. Yeah, yeah, no, anytime someone's like into like history or New York history, I, uh, the... the uh, the Village is one of those books that I recommend um, along with Low Life. And I mean, those are my top two, like probably New York books. I also like New York at War, but Low Life and The Village. And honestly, I read your I'm, I'm reading your book when Brooklyn was queer and I'm throwing it up there. It is an accessible history book. I just think that this should mean something, right? Like, that's the reason I study history. That's the reason I came to this is because I think it's so important to our lives. Mm-hmm. And yet, we're taught it in a way that just eviscerates it. Like, I think we're taught history. If we taught math the same way we teach history, it would be called counting. And all you would learn was the numbers one through 10. You know, like, that's all we're taught when we're taught history. We're not shown it as this living, breathing thing that affects who we are today, that's full of intricacies and questions and intrigue and drama. We're taught, like, fact, 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 date, 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 and just the most boring shit. And so when I came to writing this, I really wanted it to be like the books I love. I wanted it to mean something, to make you feel something, to make you care or laugh or angry or sad. Hopefully that's, yeah. uh, you know, coming through, but that's, that's the goal. I think that we need to make history feel like it matters as much as it actually does. Yeah. It's just not, it's not a series of facts to memorize. It, there are stories and, but there are some books that then go too much with the stories. And I don't feel like I learned enough, like facts that will not impress someone on a first date. I need those to seem interesting. So I need enough of that with the stories that humanizes it all. And something we, you know, we mentioned in your living room was just that like history repeats itself and in an amazing ways and hit, reading your book has been showing me like history is not exact, you know, it's kind of straight washed, so to speak. I think that's very true. All too often, you know, the just the very fact of having existed in the past seems to pass for uh, an assumption that someone is heterosexual. You know, if you're before, born before 1900, oh, you must be straight. Right, right. I today I was listening to a podcast while I was driving the the gear over to you and I was hearing some some the guest on the show she was like you know and it was like the early 2000s so like gay wasn't even really a thing then and I'm like what are you talking about what oh, I'm crying <laughs> I'm crying I feel so old all of a sudden <laughs> So so you know what was what was the significance of delving back and doing all that research on a queer history that I'm sure you were not taught growing up 
I think for me, the significance really was that I hadn't had this kind of history growing up. And so I think like a lot of queer people, you know, I won't speak for all of us, but I will say, I think there are a lot of queer people who come to history, whether it's reading it or researching it or sharing it, because we have not seen ourselves in history previously. And so we come looking for a mirror, right? We want to see a reflection so that we know we existed and that we're not abnormal freaks. Or if we are abnormal freaks, it's not just because we're gay. It's for all of these other reasons. (laughs) What is amazing to me and what I think I actually learned from history was that it isn't a mirror, right? I came looking for a mirror. And sometimes when you look far enough back, uh, it's like a window, right? You can see a shadow reflection of yourself. You can see maybe who you might have been in that time. But then if you look past that, you see what's actually there and you see how different it was. And that, for me, is the real significance, not the similarities. Those we're always grabbing onto. Those we see so clearly. But it's the the differences, because it's the difference between now and 1892, for instance, that allows me to imagine the difference between now and 2022, you know? Like, I can see the future more clearly, or the possibilities, or what could be the future, because I can see how much we have changed from our past. And that's really what I love about it. I I want to know that now is not the limit, that now is just one option. And that's what history gave to me, even though I came looking to see myself. I came looking to see today reflected in the past. But what history taught me is that that is not true and that the future, therefore, is open to us. Mm -hmm. And what's your earliest memory of having that mirror in some kind of media? The earliest one that I really remember, honestly, is a a young adult novel, a young adult fantasy novel called Magic's Pawn, written by a woman named Mercedes Lackey. It came out um, late 80s, early 90s. I probably read it in 1991, 92, somewhere around there. And the lead character was a sort of tortured, gay, closeted kid with magical powers who could talk to a psychic horse. I mean, it was exactly my life on paper. (laughs) That really drove home to me. Me. <laughs> it, it feels like my magic dragon meets Equus. Yeah. Less eye blinding, but yeah, very much the same. Uh, and it was a fantastic book. It made me very sad because it had very sad parts to it, but it was also very uplifting. And in the end, uh, the lead gay character did not die. He ended up with magical powers, and that was fantastic. And I remember reading it and thinking, oh my God, I had never read anything like that before. Never anything that seemed to have a relationship to my life in that way. And I thought it was the best book ever written. I was like 12, you know, uh, middle school, the worst time in everyone's life. So it really hit me to feel that and to read that. And were you aware of your own attractions at that point? Oh, yeah. My whole life. I, it was never a sort of a mystery for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was always queer, always attracted to to men. Um also at different times my life attracted to women but like especially when i was younger that was the case uh and so this for me was like a really exciting recognition of something that i knew about myself and even knew about in the world you know i wasn't unaware of what gay was thankfully growing up in the 80s i mean awful though it was to have aids everywhere it did mean that there was some discussion of gay sexuality fairly common around me it was a negative one 
uh, and it was a scary one. But I did see the the, the recognition of, of gay life to a certain degree uh, that it existed. So it wasn't a mystery to me, but I had never seen a main character who felt like me, told sympathetically, who got to be the hero and not die at the end or was just, you know, comic uh, throwaway joke. Mm-hmm. Or it's not like something where the entire the entire piece is just about the tragedy of this queerness, whether it's like, you know, oh, a, yeah. uh, Matthew Shepard's story or if it's an HIV story, right? Like to just have a like it's probably it was probably nice when you first saw like your first blase gay character like that really had nothing to do with the character. It was just another thing like they're five foot eight and they're gay and they're a mechanic. And here's the story that has nothing to do with much of that. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I mean, that's another great thing about studying history is that you come across so many of those people, right? The people for whom being gay or lesbian or trans or to use their terms and their uh, world to be an invert or to be a stud that was just part of their life, right? There are so many thousands upon thousands of people. And for some of them, it meant more and different things than it did for others. And my work a tiny, tiny sliver of it is what ends up in the book. Mm. I'll look at you know the lives of a thousand people who had queer experiences to figure out which two or three are emblematic of the overarching stories. And then I tell those stories in the book. But I get to see the hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of others. And that's really fun and really eye-opening. I think if you think about like queer history, most people like it starts at Stonewall, right? right. Like, like it goes, it's like Stonewall, uh hiv is stonewall bowie hiv and and then you got to today and like that's it i was so shocked reading uh as i'm reading your book like how out in the open queerness was at least out here in brooklyn or just it seemed like in new york city like you Mm -hmm. could just like you could hold hands you might get some weird looks but like people were still holding hands Yeah, you know, there were possibilities in different places, different times. I think one of the things that pre-Stonewall queer life, what was really true, is how fractured it was, right? Because life itself was so fractured back then, travel time took so long, there wasn't these instantaneous modes of communication. So you could have these pocket communities, you know, these moments of of queer possibility and queer resistance. One of my favorite uh, is towards the end of my book, in the 1950s, for about three years, there's this guy named Thomas Painter, who he's been going to Coney Island his whole life. He mm. loves taking photos of the muscle boys. He loves going to the gay bathhouses. He's been going there, you know, in the 20s and the 30s and the 40s. And then the 50s come around and Coney Island starts to be on the skid. New York City starts to be on the skid. We've left behind World War II and we're entering the really conservative 1950s. And all of these queer places that he used to go to are closing down. There's a real shutting of possibility that eventually is going to lead to the Stonewall riots, right? All these other places close. Greenwich Village becomes more and more important eventually it explodes but before all that happens 1953 he starts recording this nameless bar that opens up beneath the boardwalk at coney island right where the beaches hit the boardwalk underneath a a place called stouches which was a bathhouse that was known for serving gay men and the bar attracts queer puerto rican people almost exclusively. At least that's the start of it. Men and women, uh, and people who we would today call trans, all gathering there for these three summers at this bar that has no name, but they know to go there, and they find each other. And this community exists for three years, and then disappears. Coney Island gets too dangerous. It moves on. Uh, Most of the men end up in the Lower East Side. The guy whose letters I'm following ends up following them to the Lower East Side. 
But for three years, he says, this bar existed and was the most mixed, welcoming, open place where you could be, uh, you know, queer, you could be straight, you could be black, brown, white. Obviously, this is a white man with upper class privilege who I'm sure experienced this space differently from other people. But he contrasted it to an Italian area down further on the beach, which he said was not welcoming if you were straight, not welcoming if you were not Italian, not welcoming if you weren't the right age. So he's got the experience to sort of put this one space into context with all these others. And what he says to us is, this space was more welcoming, more open for three years and then gone. And I think that's a lot of this pre-Stonewall queer life, uh, pre-internet queer life, pre-cell phone queer life, is how fractured it is. You have pockets of possibility. They open, they close. If you're lucky, someone records it. And but and on the recording thing, I was thinking about this the other day when I uh, in the, in the bath while I was reading, which is where I do most of my reading at this point because I can't seem to focus unless I'm in a tub and I put my phone far enough away I can't touch it. Then I'm like, well, I guess I'm in this thing of water. I will read my fucking book. <laughs> and I'm I'm sitting there. I'm thinking like, you have so much in this book. There's so many different um, stories which you're calling from a lot of letters and and newspaper clippings, and that's just from what you could find. So then I think like. Oh my God, like how much history do we not know about? Cause it wasn't written down. Those things got burned. It got banned. And so, so there was probably like queer life was probably even bigger than you suggest in your book because we don't have everyone's letters and all that stuff. Like that blows my mind. And I just, oh, I just want to quickly say is like your, your book starts like 1850s, 1860s. Like that's yeah. what, like we're talking. We're going back and there is still documented stories of people who are clearly not what we would call straight, cisgender, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think the 1850s is actually a really important moment in the development of all of this because that's when you really firmly we're urbanizing. And that's when modern gay identities, as we think of them today, come to the forefront. It, it requires urbanity to a certain level uh, for the queer community as we think of it today, not exactly to exist, but to be able to name itself as it is now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think that that 1850 moment is, is a really important one. Uh, and I mark it with Walt Whitman because he writes Leaves of Grass in 1850. 1855 in Brooklyn publishes it himself. Uh, and it's really this declaration of queerness, but also of modernness and mm-hmm. what it means to be a dweller of a city and a New Yorker and a Brooklynite. Uh, it's this incredible book, which I totally did not understand, going back to how history is poorly taught. When I was taught Walt Whitman in high school, uh, we were taught it as though they were like sing-song poems with no meaning behind mm-hmm. them, you know? And that, again, deadened it because nobody wanted to touch what was inside of them, which the was The most sexuality. I got in high school was we got the I Contain Multitudes, and he told us what that really meant. That was, that was, that was the sauciest it got. <laughs> yeah, we definitely didn't get that line about, uh, I have, what is it, attended the midnight orgies of young men. Yeah, that one did not come up in my high school class. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> but, like, why was Walt Whitman able to so blatantly, in the 1850s of all times, just put that out there? Because, like, it's not like like everyone knew, right? Like, everyone knew mm-hmm. Walt Whitman liked the cruise for dudes, and he just could. Well, it's complicated, right? So, one of the things about the 1800s is it's, it's firmly in the Victorian era, right? Which is a time when, for the most part, men spent their time with men. <clears throat> And women spent their time with women. Aside from your immediate family, that was what was expected of you. We were a very homosocial society at that time. Inside a homosocial society, homosexuals are to a degree invisible, right? If you're not going to talk about sex generally, which the Victorians 
you know, mostly did not. There was no sex education, that kind of thing. Uh, and they had a lot of obscenity laws. So if you're not talking about it, if you're not talking about the sex that is happening between people, and you set up a society where men are expected to spend most of their other time with men and have most of their intense emotional relationships with other men, and women are expected to do the same with other women. And if you say that the divide between those two groups is so big that they almost can't understand each other, then what happens is men who spend a lot of time with other men may end up having sex with each other without anyone ever knowing it. They may be expressing love between each other, some of which is very appropriate, right? We have all these love letters between men from this period. You know, Hamilton, the musical, doesn't get into Hamilton's uh, letters with uh, John Lawrence. But if you want to look those up, they are intense. What? Yeah. This is oh, you just everywhere. changed some of these songs for me. <laughs> yeah, there's definitely uh, Hamilton and Lawrence have a lot going on there that is is not really fully uh, examined in the show. But that's happening between men and that's happening between women. So you have this idealized uh, same sex love, which is not homosexual, right? It's homosocial. Mm-hmm. So the Victorian era makes a place for that. And then it constructs a worldview in which men are supposed to spend their time with men and women with women. So when Whitman spends all his time with other men, to a certain degree, it's invisible. And when he has sex with them, that too is invisible until he writes it down, right? That's what makes Whitman unique, is that not that he had these feelings, not even that he carried them out, but that he was able to then write about them in a way that they were preserved. He starts to archive the feelings of men for other men. And at that time, the only idea of queerness in the world really was this idea of inversion, uh, which rested on gender and the body. You weren't queer if you had sex with another man, necessarily. That was just part of your gender, right? That was part of how well you performed manliness. Mm. The people who were visibly queer in the Victorian era were men who did not perform manliness correctly, women who did not perform womenliness correctly. It didn't matter if the dude was sucking dick or not. It was like, were you being a fuck? Like, when you suck that dick, are you being a fucking man about it, right? Like, that's kind of... A little bit of that, but also like the sucking dick was maybe not too manly. Maybe maybe it was manly. It didn't get discussed a lot. You know, like oh. it kind of fell on that outskirts of like, that's definitely not something we like and want to talk about. But it also doesn't necessarily define you as different the way it does today. Right. Yeah. Suck one dick. You're gay. Back then, it was a little bit more like, OK, but are you married, white, respectable and taking care of your wife? Well, then maybe you can suck a dick, mm-hmm. you know, and it wouldn't matter all that much in terms of who you were. And Whitman is writing all this down. He's trying to say, I am someone whose life revolves around loving other men. And that love is what makes me different. It's not how I act in the world. My body is not different. I don't have a more womanly body than anyone else's. I don't have a more womanly mind than anyone else's. I don't want to dress differently than the way I do. But I am still a different kind of person. Sexuality. Basically, Mm -hmm. Walt Whitman and the Victorian era is what grants us this vision of sexuality as separate from gender. But until that happens, people who live according to the rules of gender in a proper way but want to have sex with other people of the same gender are somewhat invisible. So Whitman is partially able to do this because there is a way for you to say in public in 1855, I love this other man, and everyone to go, yes, that's great, celebrate it, that's wonderful. 
Uh, but partially, he's also able to do this because he's an artist, so he can live a little bit of a disreputable life. Maybe it doesn't matter so much if he gets married and has kids. He lives in a city where he's a little bit more invisible. He's a white man at a time when white men had all of the freedom. He has economic stability that other people don't have. All of these things make it possible for Whitman to live this life and then write about it in a way we can find it later. And that's what that's what I was wondering when I asked is in um and it seems like for history up until not that long ago um you can get away with an alternative sexuality or even gender presentation if you are famous enough. It's not even guaranteed but like if you're famous enough you got enough money that like you can tell everyone to go fuck themselves I am who I am go for it but like if you're a, you know an average Jane lesbian who's you know working at the the shirtwaist factory, you know, uh, you, you can't afford to be too different. There's definitely some of that. I think what's interesting, uh, though, is that in that time period, in the 1850s up into the early 1900s, in at least in New York, let's talk mm-hmm. about Brooklyn, uh, you do have these working class worlds that have a space for people who are differently gendered. Uh, what you find is that the sort of upper class, uh, the, the rich people, rich white folks who are educated, they're the first ones to come up with this idea of homosexual versus heterosexual, and there's a hard line between them, and any sign of gender deviation is a sign that you're a homosexual, which is bad and must be fixed. Prior to that, uh, there's really some great new work coming out. Uh, Jen Mannion is a really fantastic author for this about how there was space in working class communities for people who violated gender norms. They may not have exactly been celebrated, but they existed. And when you live in a working class community, you can't hide in the same way that a rich person could hide and make privacy. So you have to have a part of the community. You have to have a role. Uh, So I think one of the great things about Brooklyn is that we see the ways in which working class communities made space for people who today we would call queer at a time when more upper class communities did not make as much space what would you say were some stark differences between the way from you know Walt Whitman era to the 60s from the the course of your book what were some of the major differences between the way men who loved and had sex with men were treated versus the way women who loved and had sex with women were treated and and I'll also throw out like just be you know I say love no sex may have even happened um you know, because of the way, you know, things were. But what was what was like the big difference between those two as those identities are developing? I think as they're developing, men have the ability at that time period and the economic possibility to have public lives, right? I think we see public venues that serve and cater to gay men uh, and trans women back at a time when those two communities were really collapsed together, way before we see them serving lesbians and trans men, because People who were born female, assigned female, simply didn't have the economic power to support those kind of institutions and create those kind of institutions as early as men did. You also see this around race, right? You see uh, public institutions that are kind of chartered businesses with spaces, the kind of things you find in the historical record. You see those for white men first. So I think that's above and beyond the biggest um differentiation between how these communities experienced queerness in this period from the 1850s to the 1960s, right? If you do not have full rights, you are not going to be able to fully assert your ability to live publicly. And so I think we see a lot of that. And in those moments where white men actually become problematized, we see some really interesting things happen. So I always love the example of prohibition. You'd think that prohibition, being a crackdown on bars, would have a negative effect on bars that served gay people. Um, But they didn't. 
In fact, they flourish. Queer bars flourish during Prohibition because it turns out when you criminalize the recreational pursuits of straight white men, it has this effect of making it safer for everyone. Because before that point, you, a gay person at a gay bar, might get arrested for disorderly conduct. Now, everyone in that bar is going to get arrested. So suddenly, it's a little safer to hang out with gay people. Uh, and so I think that we get these really interesting moments as things start to develop, as women get the vote. Is that because the, 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 the issue isn't that they're hanging out with, with, gay, with gay men, but that they're at a bar? Like, that becomes the issue? Yeah. Yeah. You yeah. take away the safe category. Uh, and now nobody's safe. Now no bar is safe. We're so all breaking the all rules the right now. Not yeah. necessarily equally wrong, but yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so I'd say that's one of the, the big differences that you see is just the ability to have a public life. That causes all kinds of differentiation between men's and women's experiences, between black and white experiences in New York, etc. Other big differentiations, I would say, similarly come down to when and where are people able to find work, right? So much of being queer and showing up in the historical record has to do with how you get a job. Because without a job, you cannot support yourself away from your family, the community of your birth, the church that has always known you. You cannot escape an arrest that you've had previously. You cannot escape uh, people finding out in your neighborhood, all of these things. And women don't really get those kind of public jobs until, let's say, World War II, World War I starts it a little bit, though. Um, factory work, though. Female factory workers become this really important thing. And over and over again, the two places that women really far back start to say they met other queer women were on the factory floor or in the audience or backstage at the theater. The, the vaudeville uh, theater into the legitimate theater, the strip clubs, all of those kinds of places, you find a lot of queer women. And then in factories and then emerging um, colleges, women's colleges, of course, women's schools. And as my new book shows, women's prisons, uh, because mm -hmm. those are spaces, again, that do have this kind of public face uh, that queer men are able to create for themselves by creating gay bars. But queer women uh, just don't have that financial power. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of where it comes back to the homosocial aspect, right? Yeah. And queer women, I think, are allowed to be homosocial much longer. Women in general are allowed to be more homosocial than men. Uh, so you see, we talk about, uh, if you've ever come across the term Boston marriages, uh, which is a way of referring to two women who spend their lives together. They're each other's primary relationship, may or may not be sexual. They may or may not conceptualize, conceptualize themselves as lesbians, right? But we have a category for that. We know how to talk about it. We don't have words like that for men. Uh, and that's because I think for men, homosociality became wrong much earlier and in a much more hard and fast kind of way. Yeah. And, and, and when did so? So when and when did we get there? Like, when was that point where we crossed over where, where guys couldn't hang out without getting a side eye? When do you think we you crossed know, over? I would say in the late 1800s, <clears throat> it kind of goes like this. We get this developing cities in the mid-1800s in America. In those cities, queer people start to meet each other and start to recognize each other and to say, oh, you are like me, I am like you. Uh, I might be a queer person who is properly gendered and attracted to other men, and now I see there are other people like me. So we start to get inside the queer community this revelation of what we will later come to call gay versus lesbian versus trans, bisexual, poly, you know, all of these things. Scientists then start to study those people because they want to understand who are these degenerates who are ending up in the prisons and are getting arrested and who are prostituting themselves, who are dressing weirdly. And they start to winkle out these kind of divisions and say, okay, an invert is this, a homosexual is that. 
And it's the invention of the idea of homosexuality that I think really puts a, a nail in the coffin of homosociality. Because when we get this widespread concept of the homosexual, which uh, sort of happens, I would say, between the two world wars. World War One, you see some of this. Uh, the the uh, prison system in the 1920s and the system of police really spread it in the 20s and into the 30s, and then World War Two really drives it home everywhere. This idea that to be a gay person means you could be just like anyone else, but in your head you're a deviant. It can't kind of like a communist, body. right? It, yes, it could, exactly. It's not like race. It's not race where I can see a difference potentially. It's like. Ooh, I don't know what's going on in that brain prison of yours. Yep. And no one knows what's going inside of mine either. I may not present like an invert, you know, someone whose gender is wrong. So I have to show people that I'm heterosexual. I have to do all of these things to divide myself from these other people. No and wonder we had all this like dystopian, like, you know, thought policing, you know, novels coming out, uh, you know, back then. Whereas like the, the idea of like being worried what people think is that you're thinking. You know, you get the 1984s, you get yeah. stuff like that. Where, like, no wonder, because everyone's worried, like, are they a communist? Are they gay? Are they this? And all that fear of the body snatchers, you know, McCarthyism, the Red Scare, the Lavender Scare. It's all about the invisible enemy, the person inside, the thing we cannot see. And that really gets drilled home through the military. They start giving these induction letters, le lectures during World War II that say... You have to keep an eye out for homosexuals. They are dangerous, and anyone could be a homosexual, which means you could be a homosexual. Mm. And a lot of the narrators that I, I read, oral histories that were done in the 80s, so with folks much older, will say, yes, there were problems before World War II, obviously. But it's only after World War II that you start to get the aggressive, street-level harassment that I would say is actually performative heterosexuality. It's We call it homophobia. But what it is is an attempt to say, I am not that. And you cannot tell that I'm not that unless I am constantly expressing it all the time. So things that before the war people did, like going to gay bars or seeing movies that had queer characters, suddenly become a lot scarier when someone else might take that as a sign that you are a homosexual. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Another thing that like blew my mind, uh, that's been blowing my mind reading was the idea of like, um, sexual fluidity, and even gender fluidity, fluidity is not new. I had no, no idea just how flexible things could be, how, you know, the, the idea of the, the one dick rule that was non existent. You know, you brought up the great character of the I mean, not great morally, but the boxer, I think his name is Rocky. Right. Oh, and Griffo. how like Griffo. Like, Griffo. Oh, Griffo. Yeah. And it's like, oh, the, the problem that wasn't necessarily that he sometimes likes to fuck boys, but like he fucked like a boy who was way, 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 way too young. Like that was the problem. <laughs> yeah. And even that they were not particularly unhappy about it either. Right. Like he only because he was such a fucking man. Because he was a prize fighter, right? It was an accident. He was so virile, it just happened, which I, is such a weird concept. Yeah. Um, you know, I really do think that the Victorians, we remember them today as being such sticklers. Uh, they were constantly naming everything, right? And I think that they gave us this idea that there is this thing called sexual orientation, one, and two, that it is permanent and unwavering mm -hmm. and is the only thing that determines who you will have sex with. And none of that, I think, is true. And I think we all know that if we look at our own lives, you know, we might start to say things like, oh, yes, for these years, I was confused. Or when I was here, I thought this, and then I thought that. 
that. And then this changed and I met these people. And we're constantly sort of asserting it in this sense of, but there is a central me that is timeless. I just didn't know it and I didn't feel it either, which I think is so ridiculous, right? This idea that there is a central you that you do not know about that has desires that are different from the ones you actually experience. But somewhere deep down inside, there is this permanent unwavering core, if you can figure it out, that will tell you exactly what percentage of all men on the planet you're attracted to, or I, I don't even know what it's supposed to be. I just think that sexual orientation, it's like uh, calling yourself a Democrat. It's kind of useful as a label to organize around and to inform other people sort of generally about who you are. But when you dig into it, we all have really different understandings yeah. of what it means under the hood. Yeah. goes back to the Chris Rock bit that I learned when I was like 11 or 12, where he goes like, you know, he, he's like, the premise was that it's dumb to um, decide your stances on, on all the issues without hearing an issue. Cause he's like, some things I'm conservative about, some things I'm liberal about. Crime, I'm conservative. Prostitution, I'm liberal, right? So <laughs> it's like, it's, we're all in, you know, uh, different individual things. You know, as you talked about the performative heterosexuality, that like it might have been safer out on the streets of Brooklyn to be a queer person than in 2000 in like sorry in 1900 than like 2000 am i way off again unfortunately it goes back to that idea of being so fractured back then i don't think we can talk about a sort of generalized safety i think that what you would find is that there are folks who lived very queer public lives and did so safely they had specific areas they were in specific other signifiers you know again white people uh, people who are assigned male at birth, they just have more possibility, more options, always, always, always in our country. That is the truth. Uh, but I do think that maybe not 2000, but if you want to compare, say, 1920s to 1950s, I will take the 20s any day over the 50s, even the early 60s. I mean, that that sort of uh, apogee of, of, of conformity that we get in the 50s and 60s, along with this hatred for cities, we get this suburban effort in the, the 50s and 60s, all of that really eviscerates queer life. So I think, yes, absolutely. If the options for me are being a queer person in 1923 or 1953, send me further back. Mm -hmm. Was there anything while doing the research for your, for your books that really like made you stop and take pause and go like, wow, whether it was an emotional reaction or a wow, that's fucking me up reaction or an affirming one or just excited. Like when the way I reacted about gay spies, I was like, like what really stopped you in your tracks in your research? A couple of things. One thing that stopped me in my tracks in a really great way was discovering how much drag performance there was in the Victorian era, particularly towards the end of the 19th century. I could see more drag kings in Brooklyn in 1890 than I could in 1990, hands down. I mean, there Definitely. was just so much of it, and it was so celebrated. Some of these performers, uh, women like Florence Hines and Ella Wesner, who were the two of the biggest drag kings of the 19th century, performed all over the country. They made very public livings. They lived very queer public lives. They got to do things that no one else their time period ever got to do, and they were celebrated for it, right? That's what's amazing. The fact that I could find uh, Ella Wesner's promotional cards, they made cards with her face on them, and put them inside boxes of cigarettes because she was so popular she was like a a, a sports star she had champagne a cigarette companies deal. yeah champagne companies paid her to promote their champagne during her shows that's how much everyone loved her right that was astonishing to me particularly because i was born in 1978 i grew up in the 80s and 90s and uh not only was drag not celebrated but it was sort of looked at as pathetic 
not only sad, but with no greatness and no real history to it. Um, and so to see that change in just a hundred years and to be able to track how it had been changed and how that had been forgotten and how the very act of forgetting had then been destroyed so that we would even have an idea that any of this had happened. Uh, that meant something to me. That, again, it goes back to that idea of the window versus the mirror. Suddenly I could see the potential and I could see where we might end up one day. Other places, I would say the things that I realized or the things that struck me most as shocking when I was doing this research were a little sadder. Uh, one of the things is when I started writing this book, I'd lived in Brooklyn for a very long time. I thought I knew Brooklyn, but I didn't know the history of it. And so when I started doing the research and I kept coming across the stories of white people, I was like, well, okay, I, I know that when you go further back, particularly in the North, you're going to see a whiter population than you do currently. And I knew that you know the further back I go, that was going to be true. And often in queer history, you find white sources first, but it was so overwhelming that I was like, okay, I, I really need to dig further into this. And I started looking into just the demographic history of Brooklyn, and it was shocking to me to learn that Brooklyn, between the end of slavery in New York, which is like the 1820s, and the 1940s, Brooklyn was never less than 98% white. Often it was 99% white, right? Mm -hmm. It was whiter than Manhattan. It was more conservative and more racist in many ways than outlying places outside of the city. And that just was not a history I expected to come across. Right. And and, cause, and that doesn't change till like the steamboat, right? Steamboat and it, the bridge. Uh, no, long past that. It's not really until the 1940s that we start to see a real change in the demographics in Brooklyn. It's only uh, the real, like it really becomes uh, mixed the way we think of it today in the 1960s and 70s. Mm, okay, okay. Now, now to, uh, you got to tell me about the gay spies because I sat in the tub and I shouted, gay spies? They were gay spies. <laughs> this was a plan. It's a brilliant plan. No, um, <laughs> can you please tell me and my listeners about the at least the concept of like maybe let's have some gay spies? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> this actually was really exciting for me. It was one of those stories where I found the outline of the story and then was able to dig in and find more about it. What so do you What do you mean you found an outline and then dug more? Yeah. So it all starts with a couple of newspaper articles and an article written in the 1990s that I found about this brothel in Brooklyn at 329 Pacific Street. Uh, the case was called the Swastika Swishery because it was believed that during World War II, Nazis were using this male brothel to get soldiers and sailors and then pump them for information about troop movements, which would then be sent back to Hitler. Really Huge pump them, you know. <laughs> Everyone freaks out about this. It gets entered into the floor of the Senate because there's supposedly a senator who's involved. He's been going to the brothel. And now it's not just any spies who are at the brothel. It's Hitler's like master of spies. All of these crazy allegations get made. Uh, the city police and the Office of Naval Intelligence start, they, they build a spy post inside an abandoned hospital room across the street from the apartment so they can watch everyone who goes in and out. They take photos photos of all of the license plates, all of this stuff. And eventually they swoop in, they arrest everybody, and they lean on the proprietor, this guy named Gustav Beekman. And they say, you have to tell us who the spies are. You know, give us all the information or else you're going to prison for the rest of your life. 
the only problem is there were no spies. Uh, Beekman was uh, very firmly anti-Nazi <clears throat> uh, in his beliefs. He was from Sweden, and he really was angry over what had happened to Sweden in the war, and he had had a falling out. There was a Nazi who used to go to his brothel. They had had a falling out a year before. They were also rivals. This guy ran a separate brothel in Manhattan. So none of this was ever true. He, there were no spies. No one was feeding information to anyone. There was no senator that ever came there. But the American government could not believe that he made so much money off of running a house of prostitution for men. And so they were convinced that there had to be some other source of funding, which must be this spy. So when he couldn't give that up, when he was like, I don't have any spies to give to you, they sent him to jail to a maximum security prison to Sing Sing for 20 years. And not only that, but they had already made him famous around the country as a Nazi sympathizer who was working with Nazi spies. So imagine what was going to happen to this man when he goes to prison. It was a truly shocking and, and terrible case. It also ruined the life of the senator who was gay. He was not actually going to the brothel, but it was a pretty well-known you know, story. He uh, doesn't get elected. He had already been elected twice. He doesn't get re-election. He dies a few years after this whole scandal. Uh, his name's David Ignatius Walsh. He's uh, uh, from Boston. Uh, all the guys who are in the brothels, their lives get ruined. It puts a clamp down, a chilling effect on all the brothels. They all start to close down after this because it's just too hot. There were so many brothels in New York before this period. This really puts the, the final nail in the coffin for all of them. But even though there are no gay spies in that story, what I love about this is that at the like same exact time, there are these guys who are working on a clinic to help gay men basically be closeted. Uh, they're working with guys who have been arrested for soliciting other men, usually in toilets in the subway system, sometimes in movie theaters. And they're working with these guys to try and help them, you know, not get arrested again, basically. A lot of different people are involved. Some people think they're curing the guys, but the ones who are really close to the ground know that there's no such thing as curing a gay person. You just help them live in straight society. These guys come up with the idea of using the men in their program as spies. They're like, we'll offer them up to the U.S. government. We'll send them to Germany because it's widely known. They never exactly make sure you know how this is known, but they just say it's widely known many of the Nazis are gay. And so they had this idea. They'll find the patriotic good homosexuals who are in their program and they'll send them off. And then they'll find the bad, disreputable prostitute gays and they'll blackmail those guys and they'll send those off so they had this idea that there'd be two sets of of gay uh spies the good noble gay spies who are doing it for their country and the terrible sex worker gay spies who would be blackmailed into it and the shocking thing is this memo makes its way up and up and up until it's on the desk of some of the highest up people in the navy people who go on to help form the cia they're all sort of into the idea of exploring this now, most of the records do not exist and are completely confidential, unable to get a hold of them anymore. Whether it ever actually got enacted, no way to know. But certainly people were interested in the idea. But the, the gay porn parody of the good gays versus Nazi gays, I don't know why that has not happened. <laughs> it but, may actually already exist. Uh, <laughs> a little Googling might find that one. <laughs> good point. Good point. Um, but yeah, it just goes to show that there's just, there's just so much there. You keep saying um, you keep saying that you like looking back through this stuff that you can now start to see where we might end up. Where might we end up? Well, one of the things I think about a lot is that I think we are experiencing a final sort of um, 
falling apart of this idea of the binary of sexual orientation. I think very few people think that the whole world is divided between homosexuals and heterosexuals anymore. I think that that is starting to be, as we look at the actual experiences of queer people, and we now have generations worth of living people who have not felt the need to entirely hide themselves, and as we look at generations of straight people who are comparing their lives against these lives that they now know exist, we're starting to realize that sexual orientation is a part of something, a piece And it's not necessarily a permanent piece. It's something that maybe could change as we change. And I think that is where the future is headed. I think towards a whole lot of uh, everything from non-binary identities to people who move along the spectrum of sexuality, if you want to think about it that way throughout their lives, to people who do not necessarily label themselves in certain ways. Now, that's always happened. But I think that we're starting to see that not as an illegitimate response to, but an actual correct understanding of the complicated idea that for a long time we had boiled down to a sexual orientation binary. I just don't think it's real. And I think we're starting to see that it's not real. And we're starting to sort of talk about more complicated models for what could be in its place. Yeah. And even if people aren't totally understanding what the the quote unquote other options are than the the, you know, the binary and the one in the middle, uh, you know, at least I think people are starting to get open to the idea of Okay, maybe there isn't this like a girl or like a boy thing. Maybe there's other stuff. It doesn't apply to me, but okay. Like I think people are starting to accept that um, the world that they were raised in um, is not necessarily what it what it actually was. I think they're they're open to other realities, which is which is nice. I I, I read your book, and I think uh, your book and other books like it are really important. I think uh, if 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 you assigned any one of these books that have so much queer history in them in a high school, I just think what that would do for youth, for queer youth, um, just knowing that like they're not a chapter, mm-hmm. they're an entire. There's an entire history, and that you know, and I I identify as a straight dude, and yet that warms my fucking heart, and makes me want to cry. Uh, <laughs> so I'm I really enjoy, it. and again, the book is just so well written that like i'm definitely going to read the prison one when it's out because um i like your writing style and i think it really keeps someone in and engaged um what's what's some uh i'll ask that in in, actually a second but uh, why don't you tell us a bit about about the new book the the book that's coming out this year uh very soon right Hopefully, hopefully it's going to come out at the end of the year. Um, Things have gotten, you know, the pandemic has gotten everything a little crazy, but uh, it's called The Prison on Christopher Street, and it's about the Women's House of Detention, which was a women's prison that was located in Greenwich Village from 1932 to 1971. In fact, it wasn't torn down until 1974. Uh, It was there during the Stonewall riots. Uh, Women on the inside actually set fire to their belongings and threw them out the windows while chanting, gay rights, gay rights, gay rights. And yet people still debate whether there were women present at the Stonewall riots. And I often say, yeah, they were half a block down yeah. and 600 feet up in the air. Right just there. just had to look for them. <laughs> I used to live at 9 Christopher Street. And when I when I first learned about that prison, I was like, it was right. I could have thrown a rock at it <laughs> from where I used to yeah, live. And yet today it is almost completely forgotten. And I have been very lucky. It's like a little garden meet. now, right? It's that little triangle yeah, with the garden. It. Just that little little garden. I've been very lucky to meet and talk to a number of uh, women and trans folks who were imprisoned there at various what? times. <laughs> Yep, there's some still alive who have told me some incredible stories about their experiences. And then doing the research on it has just been fascinating because I think for a very long time, lesbian history, uh, particularly the histories of women who identify as lesbians, not 
uh, trans histories, not um, the sort of queer histories of famous women who maybe had some sex with other women but didn't identify publicly, but the, the histories of lesbian women have been just ignored, and particularly in Greenwich Village, where they go back so long, so far, so deeply, it's almost laughable to me how little we know about their stories of the village. And the House of Detention was a place that brought thousands of queer women into Greenwich Village every year, uh, and particularly in the later years, mostly women of color, at all times, mostly working class women, women who are rarely considered the folks for whom Greenwich Village was a queer space. And so it's great and exciting for me to get to tell their stories. And do you think that book is like a compliment to when Brooklyn was queer? Do you think it's filling in a gap? Do you think it's its own? Um, does it relate to that book too much or... It does relate, but differently. The nice thing about this new book is that I'm not stretching back into the Victorian era. I, I have to touch a little bit on how our ideas about gender and sexuality have changed, but really I'm telling the story of modern ideas about lesbianism and the emergence of modern trans identities that in some ways it's constrained a little bit more to stuff we already know about, at least in theory. Mm -hmm. And what I'm getting to do is flesh out the actual stories of these women who lived utterly incredible lives, unexpected, amazing lives, everything from... You know, a 19-year-old hitchhiker in 1934 who tells all about all the trans women she fell in love with and how she met this uh, female impersonator at the Chicago World's Fair and the two fell in love and how she was chiseling, which is what she calls uh, sex work, to support, she says him, but, you know, obviously makes it clear that Wait, did you say woman. chiseling means sex work? Yes, she calls so herself a chiseler. So in Gangs of New York, when he calls him a chiseler, that's what that meant? Yeah. Hugh, yep. you're you're filling in so many <laughs> gaps for me. <laughs> That's what I'm here for. But this book, so I go all the way from that to the fact that the first ever lesbian love song on Broadway that I can find is a love song between two black women, one of whom is incarcerated in the women's house of detention, and the other one is on the street below singing up to her on the you know sixth floor, singing up to her prison window. I think I think I read that story. Yeah, I think I, I think I've I've read about that. Yeah, it's all the House of Detention <laughs> connects all of these decades, all of these people, all of these forces. And I it's like a lens. And I'm excited to tell the story of uh, what happens to everyone who passes through it. Well, man, I'm uh, I'm excited to read it uh, when it comes out. And I'm very excited to you know finish uh, when Brooklyn was queer. Uh, do you I don't know your time constraints. Do you have another like 10, 15 minutes? Could do a little bonus episode for the Patreon. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Beautiful. Beautiful. I, I, I was it. uh I got some questions about like maybe what didn't make the book, uh, some old, some talks about the old terminology. Well, for, for well for right now, um, folks. Uh, also, I want to say, I again, this is, might be something for only you, me, and three other you, me, and Greg Young from Bowery Boys. This might be a comment for only that. But when I saw, I think it's on your website. Uh, George Chauncey told you you're making history cool. I was like, yes, you're making history cool. But I also appreciate that George Chauncey told you that because I'm like, I know who that is. Because for, yeah, for that was amazing. <laughs> Hearing that from him was really exciting. <laughs> uh, George Chauncey, everyone wrote a book called Gay New York, which honestly, up until the last few years, kind of was one of the only like gay history books I think I could have named. And not even because I'd read it yet, just because it's been referenced in so many history books I've read. So I was just like, oh, my God, George Chauncey, that's so sick. <laughs> I could tell that to anyone. They'd be like, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> I know, but I'm getting it carved on my tombstone. <laughs> I, I think that's a very valid, wise decision. Um, Hugh, for now, where can uh, where can people find you, uh, you know, check out your work? 
Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Hugh Ryan, or no, Q underscore Ryan, that's it. And my website is HughRyan.org. And the book is available everywhere when Brooklyn was queer. And if you like my voice, I read the audio version. So you can listen to me uh, whisper in your ear about gay history for 12 or so hours. Oh, fabulous, fabulous. Well, Hugh, thank you so much. And uh, I can't wait to do this little bonus episode. But for now, why don't you go ahead and say goodbye to everybody. Goodbye, everyone, and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Billy, for having me. This is really fun. I don't know about y'all, but I have been stuck in my apartment for like 16 years during this pandemic, and just seeing another face and getting to talk to a human who is not one of my cats is really wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) A little announcement for everybody. You know, longtime fan of the show, Owen Stanley, he... Uh, asked me to share something with y'all. Owen, on March 9th, uh, started an adventure to hike end-to-end the entire 2,200-mile Appalachian Trail. He's starting down in Georgia. He's going to end in Maine, uh, and he wants to complete that uh, within 100 days to raise $100,000 for polio eradication through the uh, Rotary International. He writes to me, why polio? Well, because it exists and it shouldn't. I acknowledge I could raise millions of dollars for causes I care about, such as climate activism, racial inequality, or mental health awareness, and never make a concrete change. Rotary International has been working on polio eradication since 1979, and they still have two endemic countries left. We are extremely close to eradicating a second human disease after smallpox. So if any fan whores out there want to support a like-minded whorehead, you know, out there on the trail, raising money to get rid of polio from like these last two countries that need help getting rid of it, uh, please go to hikeforpolio.org. That's H-I-K-E-F-O-R-P-O-L-I-O.org. P-O-L-I-O. I think I got that right. <laughs> and if that's not enough... All the money that Owen raises uh, will qualify for a two-to-one match from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. So if you got $10, that $10 is really $30 uh, to help end polio. I'll have a link to that in the show notes. Go check it out. Uh, I would love to know what you thought about this week's episode. Come join us in the Champagne Room, our free and open Discord server. You can go to manwarpod.com slash discord to join us in there. There'll be a channel uh, for episode 375, but we also got channels for memes, channels for movies, channels for sex toy recommendations, and more. Uh, Go check out the show notes for a link to that. Also in the show notes are a link to all my social media. Uh, I'm on Twitter, Clubhouse, TikTok, all those things at TheBillyPresida. The one annoying place is Instagram. I'm at BillyIsPresida. I'm not happy about the handle either, but I would be happy if you followed me there. Last but certainly not least, you can become a member of the fan whore community and receive a slew of great rewards, as well as connect with like-minded, sex-positive individuals. Doesn't hurt that you're helping keep a roof over Billy's head uh, and escaping the Pam Gate roommate. Become a member today for as little as $2 at patreon.com slash podcast. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash podcast. Uh, Today, I got to go interview a sex witch. Uh, Next week, I hope you'll be hearing from Sophie St. Thomas. But for now, get that vaccine appointment and stay slutty. At least after your first shot. Come on now. (laughs) 
It's the vibrator that has no equal. And now, Motor Bunny offers their thrusting sex machine, the Motor Bunny Buck. Enjoy a fan whore discount at manwhorepod.com slash motorbunny or use promo code manwhore at checkout. <laughs> 